This is Inputs, the podcast by Top Crop Manager, Canada's national source for the latest agronomic research, crop production, and technology trends. You've tuned in to hear conversations about relevant research, best production practices, and everything in between. Hello, Top Croppers, and welcome to the final episode of our Inputs podcast coverage of the Plant Health Summit. My name is Alex Bernard, Associate Editor for Top Crop Manager magazine. The Plant Health Summit was a conference run by Top Crop Manager at TCU Place in Saskatoon on February 25th and 26th. Summit featured presentations on a variety of topics, from disease management and updates on club root anaphanomyces root rot, to insect pest control, to the future of farming with smart technology and plant growth regulators. This series will include conversations with the presenters about their topic and the central message growers and agronomists can take away and use in their work. Our final episode features Tom Wolfe, a spray application specialist, co-owner of Agrometrics Research and Training in Saskatoon, and co-creator of Sprayers 101. It will come as no surprise, then, that he presented on spraying and spray technology, though he focused on fungicide spraying, a relatively new type of spraying with additional challenges when compared to herbicide spraying. Tom discusses the importance of timing, best fungicide spray practices, and how to get the most out of your spray days. We're going to talk about how to uh, maximize uh, fungicide performance, but I want to say first of all that herbicide spraying is easy. We have a large variety of modes of action available to us. We have an increasingly generic market that uh, makes it affordable to do more tank mixing. We have wide open space where the weed is accessible. There's no canopy covering the weed. It's really the easiest job we have in the business, to be quite honest. On the other hand, spraying fungicides into denser canopies, now that's a challenge. That's actually very difficult. And solving this challenge is quite elusive. There are no silver bullets I'm going to share with you this morning. It is a very incremental process. It's just a process of putting the pieces that help you into place so that should you need them to work together to help you achieve the job, that you can actually achieve that. And here's a couple of data points that we collected over the last few years in a project funded by the Western Grains Research Foundation about where the spray goes in the canopy. We did a, a couple of dozen studies in a lab environment, but in an actual canopy, and monitored where the spray goes top, middle, or bottom. And you can see this serious attenuation of the signal, the deposit, with distance expressed as a percentage of the total amount, or the top amount rather, you know, we have really just a fifth of it left by the time we reach any depth in the canopy, in some cases even less. And oftentimes that's where the target is, right? That's where the spray actually has to go. So this is a physical barrier. And secondly, another thing that happens is when we look at the variability of the deposit in the canopy, this lower point has the highest variability. Sometimes it's a little bit more open, and sometimes it's covered over by other foliage and that form an umbrella over the top. Very difficult to reach that. So these two challenges, diminishing the dose and increasing its variability, really work against us in the fungicide world. And we don't actually ever encounter these problems in the herbicide world. It's Alex Bernard, and I'm speaking today with... Tom Wolfe. I'm the owner of Agrimetrics Research and Training, and we also run Sprayers101.com with Jason DeVoe. 
Excellent. So could you tell me a little bit more about Sprayers 101? Sprayers 101 is a free website for anybody involved in the business of spraying. So that could be a spray applicator, perhaps a retailer, perhaps an agronomist. And we're trying to make information on spraying accessible. We're doing it through a series of articles on boom spraying and also orchard air blast spraying. How have you found the response to it? It's been overwhelming, actually. The website is now, it's going to be five years old this summer, and we do keep track of the users. We're very happy with the feedback we're getting. So just some numbers. Looks like we're getting about 600,000 page views a year on it. Our most read articles are read between 20 and 40,000 times. So that's, we're very surprised. We're very appreciative of the sponsorship we have. The commodity groups of the major farm commodities are sponsoring us. We are not sponsored by anyone who sells anything. So we can stay impartial. And I think that's part of the value. We want to sort of, I guess, say it like it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I noticed that you used to work for Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada and that you started Agrimetrics with Sorry, I forget his name. I uh, started Agrimetrics with my business partner, Brian Caldwell. So Brian and I worked together at Ag Canada, in okay. fact, and we were the team that did spray application work. And when we decided to go private, we just formed a new company and continued doing a similar kind of work because there's so much demand for it. Okay. And the problem-based, client-focused work, what do you think of that as opposed to the more broader, long-term focus of the Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada work? Yeah, that's a great question because I think ultimately, you know, our clients, the farmers, are best served by long-term, far-reaching, high-risk research that is usually only done by government institutions. We need to anticipate problems and develop solutions before they become serious, right? That's the whole nature of the game. We also have to embark on, I guess, the things that may not have commercial value, right? So the traditional public good research. Still, the federal government does an excellent job of doing that with with plant breeding and, and those kinds of things, universities as well. But more and more of the work in egg is being done now by private companies. Look at the new the new work that Joy Agnew talked about this morning. You know, a lot of that development of platforms for site-specific egg, either monitoring or site-specific treatment, is being developed by private companies. The services and the data that go into that are being done by private companies. So they actually hold a lot of the expertise, and the federal government is pretty far behind there. But in terms of our work, we have not been able to conduct some of the longer-term high-risk things, although we still get money from the same funding sources that many of our federal researchers also do, and that is the commodity groups. The commodity groups really are controlling the research funding for a large part of our sector. And so they are naturally driven by their needs, their priorities. And I think we all sort of work towards those needs, right? Yeah, it's nice to have a common goal, whether you're focused on longer or shorter term research. It is. But, you know, in today's environment, as governments of all levels are sort of counting the beans, I guess, and just withdrawing from things that they think they can no longer afford to do, we are seeing a withdrawal from some parts of ag research. And I'm not sure if that's a good thing. I think there are certain things that we have to prepare for that will surprise us when they do get here. Yeah, sometimes the quantifiable doesn't always account for the intangibles that are just as important, but a little more abstract. Yeah, like for example, let's take let's take herbicide resistance. You know, a couple of years ago, Top Crop Manager had a herbicide resistance summit in this very building, and the issue is 
possibly one of the most important to face us in this generation. The trends indicate that herbicide resistance is still continuing to grow and that the solution to herbicide resistance is probably not the development of new herbicides, right? Mm -hmm. Therefore, we have to find other ways of combating this problem. And that may not be a commercial venture. So it might just be a cultural practice. It might be a a different way of thinking about things, a companion crop, a cover crop, those kinds of things. And uh, who's going to fund that? It's a struggle, I think, and yet it's incredibly important for us to do it. What are some misconceptions people have about fungicide spraying or just spraying in general that you'd like to put a little more information out there for? Yeah, so fungicide spraying is sort of one of the growing parts of the spraying business. We've always done more herbicide spraying in general. Almost every acre gets a herbicide, you know, and about 70 to 80% of the traditional sales of crop protection agents in Canada have been herbicides. The late season sprays, as I like to call them, which could be fungicides or insecticides or harvest aid herbicides, are starting to increase. And that's possibly because there is, you know, we've had some different weather conditions that are more conducive to disease. We certainly have had new diseases, new crops that bring certain diseases into the realm and the lack of genetic resistance to those diseases. So that spraying has become more important. The key difference really is the size of the canopy. In herbicide spraying, it's really easy to hit the target. The weed, it's small, but it's pretty exposed because the crop isn't big. Mm -hmm. And in fungicides, it's the opposite. The crop is now almost fully grown, dense canopy, can't see through it, much less find, you know, have a drop that find its way through it. So we're trying to find ways of getting the spray through, and that is an enduring challenge. You know, I advocated for water volume. It's a bit of a tug of war between water volume and droplet size. Some people say, make the spray finer and it'll trickle through better. But there are risks associated with that, you know, the, the risk of drift and evaporation. Yeah, you did mention coarseness of the spray and water volume as aspects of good coverage, or like, Things that influence the coverage of a fungicide spray. Could you expand on that? Yeah, yeah. So traditionally, people have always felt that, I think people have understood that coverage is important, but they've always felt that coverage is best achieved with finer sprays. And it's true, you know, mathematically speaking, if you take a certain amount of water and you divide it into smaller droplets, you get more droplets, and those droplets give you more, quote, coverage, whatever that means, droplets per square centimeter, perhaps. In fact, the empirical evidence from our studies in cereal crops, oilseed crops, and pulse crops in the efficacy of the fungicide application, we have not found a relationship between droplet size and efficacy, which was very surprising. It flies in the face of all of our expectations. It actually flies in the face of the experience from other parts of the spraying business, for example, the orchard air blast business relies on small drops for coverage because the foliage is so overwhelmingly big. But remember, they have air to carry the small droplets into that part of the foliage. But they view small drops as essential to getting their work done. So we expected that to be true in the field crop situation as well, and it simply isn't. We have found that water volume trumps droplet size almost every time. And so we're trying to find out, okay, what's the context of this finding? I would say I'm actually surprised, but actually in some way happy about the fact that coarse droplets work at just as well as finer droplets because coarse droplets drift less, they evaporate less. So they give us greater windows of opportunity. 
So we can spray under slightly windier conditions, maybe longer into the middle of the day. We can possibly spray when it's a little warmer out, although it's not really not that wise to do it, but we have more latitude. So we widen the window of opportunity. What does that mean? It means we have a greater chance of getting the spraying done at the right time. Almost all pest control is very time sensitive. And in the fungicide world, it could be just a day or two that makes the difference between having something work or not work. So the coarse sprays give us that opportunity. So I, I say that coarseness is sort of another word for productivity. We want to get more done per day. Mm-hmm. And that's what, that's what we're able to achieve. So that's, that's key. One of the other things you mentioned about the importance of productivity and spending time spraying rather than idling is both increasing the efficiency of your operation while spraying and not being too stubborn to use aerial application if that's necessary. Exactly. Let's not quibble about how to best spray. Let's quibble about when to spray. That's where you should put your energy. When the time comes to spray, you spray with whatever method is available to you to get the job done in a timely fashion. All research points in that direction. Missing the ideal time to spray makes even a very efficient spray method literally ineffective. And the converse is that spraying of what we might call, you know, a suboptimal spray is much better when it's done at the right time than missing that window. So, you know, we've actually then in our research looked outside of the spray operation per se, and we are trying to do more time accounting. So if the sprayer is operating, its engine is running, let's assume it's a good spray day, we want to know, okay, how are you spending your time? Are you running around collecting things? You know, <laughs> Are you waiting for someone to deliver you pesticide or water? Are you waiting for the, the pump to, to finish filling the tank and it's taking longer than expected? Or do you spend a lot of time cleaning the sprayer tank? which is very important, but it can be very time-consuming because you never know when you're actually done because it looks clean, but is it, you know? Mm-hmm. So those are the, the robbers of time, and usually those activities occur during excellent spraying conditions. So we're finding that by helping our customers take a look at that aspect of it, they're getting their spraying done on time as a result. And that's very important. Yeah. Celebrating its 35th anniversary this year, ANL Canada Laboratories is an innovative, research-driven technology company focused on sustainable development. Through leading expertise, modern laboratory facilities, and a strong customer focus, ANL serves a wide range of industries, including agriculture, environmental, food, and pharma globally. ANL's Vitellus Soil Health Test is the next-generation soil health test and recommendations package used by farmers and crop consultants across Canada to make more informed decisions on their application of nutrients and on managing and improving their soil. To learn more, check out alcanada.com and reach out to your local ANL rep. And talk about what the real lesson is from all these studies. The real lesson is that there's no earth-shattering revelation that there's a certain way to apply fungicides that makes them work miraculously better. It's a tough challenge and we haven't cased it yet. But what we do know from an agronomic perspective that timing is absolutely crucial in making these products work well. Oftentimes in some diseases our window is tight. One or two days, depends on the weather. And just imagine for one second that there is rain in the forecast and that will delay you and maybe possibly make the situation even worse than before. What is the cost of not spraying one field that is scheduled to be sprayed before the rain? What is that cost? 
And that boils down to opportunity cost of that hour or two that it would have taken to spend on spraying that field. If you have a quarter section and you lose $20 per acre because of that three or four day delay because of severe disease, that hour that it would have taken to spray that field is worth 20 times 160. It's $3,000. That's what that hour is worth. And that's why a lot of the work that we're doing on Spurs 101 with Jason is talking about how do you get more hours on spray time? How do you do that? Because that's actually it. So the answer is we focus on the amount of time that we spend idling. And we minimize it by improving the efficiency of our operations when we're not spraying. So we actually fill faster, clean faster, adjust better, are more prepared to do the job so that we can then say, when the engine's running, it's a spray day. That's what I'm assuming. I just want you to, to use the time better. Time accountancy. Where is the time going? No one does it, by the way. But where is your time going? How are you spending your day, your spray day? What exactly are you doing? Are you waiting for the water truck? So the single biggest efficiency improvement that we've seen in spraying in, in the last 10 years is the three-inch pump. It's the faster fill. The tender trucks that can prevent the sprayer from waiting because time is, time is incredibly valuable. Is there one either piece of technology or practice you would recommend that would increase efficacy for any person trying to spray? Well, having said that water really is the key ingredient and the, the amount of water you need is really tied to the kind of canopy that you have. So the more dense canopies with more foliage, so what we call a greater leaf area index. You know, some canopies have leaf area indices of five or six, which means for every square centimeter of ground, you've got six square centimeters of leaf. So you need a lot of water to cover that, right? Mm -hmm. And the technology that makes that large water use possible is really filling efficiency. So a big pump, uh, a well-designed tender truck. Uh, I talked to a farmer just a few minutes ago who said they are putting a, what we call a hot mix tank on their tender truck, which means they have a second person who mixes the chemical in that second tank while the other person is operating the sprayer. When the sprayer is empty, it simply pulls up and they just simply transfer that mixture over. That might be as quick as four minutes. Mm -hmm. And then the operator is spraying again. If you had to fill and mix while doing it, it might take 10 or 15 minutes, same operation. So yeah, you save five or 10 minutes of time mm -hmm. per fill, you might have 10 fills per day. So that adds up, how much is that? It could be one or two extra fields that you can spray in that day. It does add up, surprisingly. Mm -hmm. And that is so valuable because what if the weather changes? Are you caught up or not? Mm -hmm. The consequence of not being caught up and being caught out in bad weather, uh, I think financially, it could be pretty, pretty big, yeah. Yeah. I know someone mentioned yesterday when I was talking to them that bleaching in herbicide application is a significant risk. Is it the same for fungicide use? Could be. So the PMRA does evaluate the toxicity of fungicides in water and persistence in soil. They do all of that. And surprisingly, and this is not well known, many of our fungicides and insecticides are quite toxic to aquatic organisms. Okay. Yes. So if you look at buffer zone distances, for example, that are published on the labels, some of the fungicides have large buffer zones. So I think being good stewards means taking like, taking note of that. So, you know, and, and I think it might it might be related to runoff as well. So if you can spray well before a rain, let's say. <laughs> 
rather than just before one, I think that would be preferable. But I think that's obviously a big ask. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, like you said, there's only so much time and that window is small. That's right. And, you know, you spray when you can and you do have to trust the regulatory process that it's okay to have rain after you spray. There's certainly a drying interval for you know, rain fastness, right? But, but in terms of running into a waterway, I think we want to be cautious about that too. That has certainly been a serious problem in other parts of Canada. For example, everyone remembers the the fish kills that occurred in response to potato spraying in Prince Edward Island you know, 10, 15 years ago. And I think they still actually occur. They may not be making the news, but it's related to spraying shortly before a rainfall. It has, of course, to do with the fact that runoff is more likely to occur in a row crop than it is in a cereal cover crop and it has to do with trash and slope and all that other stuff but those practices i think we have to be mindful of i mean we want to continue to use pesticides while they work and being a responsible steward is part of that Mm -hmm. so what can farmers and agronomists do to improve crop management through spraying well i mean spraying is one part of of preserving yield potential And in my view, it's actually possibly the least important part. You know, the agronomic basis for good yield is done much before a spraying decision is made. I really don't want to use the herbicide or the insecticide or fungicide application as a crutch for bad agronomic practice. The big hammers in farming are still going to be crop rotation, residue management, fertility management, timing has to do with the scale of the operation, whether you can do all those things well. Spraying fits into that whole picture. Spraying can do things that nothing else can. Spraying, for example, can remove weeds without tillage. That's a very, very important part of what we do as a business. We're very proud of that. We don't want to lose that capability. Mm-hmm. You know, the alternatives are to make soil more evaporation and erosion prone. And I think that would be bad for all of society. So, you know, good stewardship is, is part of that we have tended to become over-reliant on the, the use of these pesticides because they work so well. But with resistance development, I think that will possibly hurt us in the future. So I think the important thing is to minimize the use of these products as much as possible. Use resistant cultivars, lodging resistant cultivars would save you a growth regulator application, for example. You know, there's other things to consider, of course, but, you know, we always hunt for the resistant, the disease resistant, insect resistant cultivars. So that breeding effort is huge for us. Remember that all nozzles produce a range of drop sizes and the tool to change the overall niveau is pressure. Pressure adjustment does almost everything you'd possibly want in the realm of useful droplet sizes. Give me any intermediate air induction tip, lower the pressure, it's coarse enough for any drift result, increase the pressure, it's fine enough for most cover situations. So that is, that is your tool. Uh, I want to draw attention to one thing. I did say that small drops are better suited for denser canopies, and I wanted to leave that in there because that is the power of expectation versus proof. Because we all intuitively believe, all of us in the business, that small drops add value in penetrating dense canopies. And I have no empirical data to suggest that it's true. And yet, I still believe it. Strange, huh? Anyways, I'm sharing that with you. Scouting. <laughs> scouting is, is key, obviously. And when you do the scouting, 
the bird's eye view is what's important. So the knowledge that I talked about at the very beginning of where does the spray have to go and can you see that part of the plant? If the answer is yes, the application is relatively easy. If the answer is no, the application is very hard. And your tool is water. Can you see your target? If not, add water. For fusarium, we know that angle sprays have value. There's no doubt about it. The more aggressive the angle, the better. The coarser the spray, within reason, the better. And it all goes away if your booms are too high. Sclerotinia, we see no advantage with fine sprays. We do see a slight trend to higher pressures being better, possibly that the patternation uniformity was better. The buds and petals were equally adept. And by the way, the, the leaf axles, I never said that when I showed you the data, are not good collectors of spray no matter what you do. There's nothing there. Pulse crops, uh, we didn't really see any spray quality effects. The higher water volumes were indeed better. And the issue of canopy closure and the difficulties that presents can be addressed to some degree by actives that allow a slightly earlier application and carry forward in the residual activity. Aerial application is absolutely okay. Remember, timing trumps application method. But there is that conversation with a pilot, and I have these conversations a lot, where they say, you know what, we've got a list this long of customers who want us right now. Our ferrying distance is 50 miles, and we'd like to apply two gallons per acre. Do we have the green light? And I always say, no, you don't. And that, the question that we have to have in, in conversation is, what is the cost of more water? The per acre cost. If it's only a few dollars, then it's probably worth it to go that way, but you have to have that conversation. Thank you again to Tom Wolf for speaking with me, and to you for tuning in to Inputs, the Top Crop Manager podcast. While this is the final episode of our Plant Health Summit coverage, we'll be back again with a new series before you know it. Until then, I wish you continued luck in the 2020 growing season and a bountiful harvest when the time comes. Thanks for tuning in to Inputs, the podcast by Top Crop Manager. To catch up on all of our other episodes, visit topcropmanager.com slash podcasts.